You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia. I'm your host, Breach Burke, and um, today we're going to talk about Medusa and uh, her sisters, the Gorgons. Um, in fact, they're all Gorgons, uh, all three of them. And Medusa's quite a popular topic. She, um, you, you see, um, you see her represented a lot in movies, in um, you know mythological, you know novels. Uh, you know, you see her probably represented in gaming and in artwork and a lot of different places. Um, she's been represented actually um, long past Greek and Roman civilization. Uh, you see her uh, in artwork, you know, throughout all the different periods, through, you know, the Renaissance and so forth. Uh, there are a lot of representations of Medusa in art. And um, I think, so, so So there's a tremendous amount of interest in Medusa. When I teach mythology, um, I usually will provide students with a number of topics that they can uh, choose from in terms of making their... Um, writing their, their, you know, their, their term papers for the course. And inevitably I'll have one on Medusa and they will always choose that one. That, that one's a very popular one. I've had classes where 85 to 90% of my students are interested in Medusa. They're interested in Medusa or they're interested in Aphrodite. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting um, uh, dynamic to, to look at. But uh, Medusa is a fascinating figure, and um, you know, and again, we're talking about artwork, but also um, also in, in literature too. She represented um, a lot in uh, poetry, and in you know, there, there's other other kinds of adaptations of her story uh, that, that that sort of look at the different nuances of her. She's been used as a symbol for different things uh, over time, having to do with women and women's issues. And so I think it's important first, again, we talked about the uh, Arrhenius last week, or two weeks ago, and it's important to recognize the way, one of the, one of the things that, a pattern you might notice is that these goddesses or these, these, these beings start out as one thing initially in mythology, and they kind of later morph into something else that's, that's quite different. And the same is also true of Medusa. Um, now, first of all, let's talk about who the Gorgons are. Okay, now Medusa is one of, of three Gorgon sisters, okay? Steno, Ureli, and, and Medusa, they're the three of them. Uh, Medusa is unique in that she is actually mortal, okay? She actually, uh, and, and mortal by definition means you're capable of death, you can die. The root word is mort, you know, you know, um, you know, or, you know which, has to, which is the word for death. And um, so if you're immortal, therefore you are immune to death. And, and the Gorgons are actually uh, sea monsters, okay? They are the uh, children of uh, Forcus and Cato, uh, who are sea monsters. And, uh, and you know, they are, and so these, they are therefore creatures of the sea. Uh, actually, the name uh, Ureli actually has to do with brine or brininess which has to do with the sea foam or the foaminess of the, the churning of the sea. Um, I'd like to give a full description of uh, the Gorgons. Um, I have here um, uh, Pierre Grimal's uh, Dictionary of Mythology that uh, Penguin puts out. It's actually a, quite a good one. And let's see, I just want to find the Gorgons. Here we are. <clears throat> okay. Okay, so this is, a, this is Pierre Grimal that I'm quoting from here. 
There were three Gorgons called Steno, Ureli, and Medusa, all daughters of Forcus and Cato. Medusa was mortal, the other two were immortal. The name Gorgon was generally applied to Medusa, who was particularly considered as the Gorgon. They lived in the far west, okay, um, I'm just going to stop here and mention that the west, along with um, caves, deserts, the sea, other things, were often associated with the underworld, okay. So they were, they were creatures of the west, they were creatures of, of um, you know, of the, um, the, the, the land of death. Their heads were entwined with snakes, and their necks were <clears throat> protected by dragon scales. They had huge tusks like those of a boar, hands of bronze, and golden wings. Their gaze was so penetrating that anyone who encountered it was turned to stone. Poseidon, who was the god of the sea, alone was not afraid of them, for he had coupled with Medusa and fathered a child. Actually, he fathered two children with Medusa. We'll talk about them in a minute. Um, he mentions the death of Medusa, uh, having to do with Perseus, which we'll, which we'll talk about again in a moment. Um, from the stump of Medusa's neck, because of course she's beheaded, uh, two, be, um, two beings sired by Poseidon issued forth, Pegasus, the winged horse, and Criseor. Um, Criseor is, is generally represented as a man who's born carrying a golden sword. And again, we'll talk about what that means in a second. Athena fixed Medusa's head to her shield or the center of her aegis, uh, you know, that's an aegis, of course, another word for shield. Uh, in this way, she could turn her enemies to stone. Perseus also gathered up the blood that flowed from the wound, for it had magic properties. The blood which flowed from the vein on the left um, was a mortal poison. That's interesting. Now, the left and right dynamic as well. The left becomes the sinistra in, in, in Latin. The, um, you know, we, we associate that with the sinister. Um, so just like we have these dichotomies of good and evil and, and so forth, you have the dichotomy of left and right, and left is always considered to be sort of the, um, you know, when we talk about Satanism, we talk about the left-hand path, you know, there's this sort of association with it that's darker. Um, um, but that which flowed from the right was a remedy capable of restoring life. Okay, so Medusa's blood can either kill you or can make you live. Interesting. Think about, th this is actually something to consider. Furthermore, a single lock of her hair, when held up in the face of an attacking army, would put the enemy to flight. Uh, by the Hellenistic era, the legend of Medusa had involved considerably. At the start, the Gorgon was a monster which belonged to the pre-Olympian generation. Then she came to be considered as the victim of a metamorphosis. Okay, this is, this is back to Ovid. Uh, it was said that the Gorgon had originally been a beautiful girl who had dared to set her beauty against that of Athena. She was especially proud of her beautiful hair. So to punish her, Athena changed her hair into a mass of snakes. In other versions, Athena unleashed her wrath against the girl because Poseidon had ravished her in a temple sacred to the goddess. Medusa had to suffer punishment for this sacrilege. Okay. So what we're looking at here are really three different stories. We have an original story which is, um, in a sense, we can call Medusa a goddess, um, although not, it, technically she's mortal, so she's kind of not a goddess. She's more like just a sea monster. But she is, um, she's actually kind of on the level of a titan. She's pre-Olympian, okay? The Olympians um, are born from uh, Cronus and Rhea, and so they are, you know, for the most part. So they are, you know, so they are, they are children of the titans. And these two, um, Forcus and Cato, are, are monsters that uh, that come from the sea. Um, so they are they are considered to be kind of, um, at the very least, they're sort of contemporaries of the Olympians, if not if not pre-Olympian. Okay. Um, 
And it's interesting how we, okay, we see a story here um, that kind of moves through these through these different versions. And I want to talk a little bit about the three kind of key themes that appear, um, that the Medusa myth actually brings up. But before I do that, um, I think what I would like to do is talk about the, um, the story of Perseus and Medusa, because that is the one that... Um, that's the one that people, you know, that, that is the one that is uh, typically associated with her and, and is the most famous one. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you that story also from Grimal because it's, it's, it's a good, it's a well-summarized version here. Okay, so Perseus is the son of Zeus and Danai, okay? Um, Zeus visits Danai as a shower of gold. Okay, uh, her father, Acrisius, does not want her. He's very jealously guards her. He's sort of the, you know, there's, there's this mythological motif of the, of the jealous father or uncle, you know, the wicked father or uncle. And when it comes to young women, it often becomes uh, that they're not going to let them. They're going to try to keep them virgins. Um, but uh, Zeus, of course, <clears throat> gets her pregnant. And she at first, uh, he says here, Danai contrived to bear Perseus secretly to keep him in secret for several months. One day, however, the child gave a cry, which was heard by Acrisius. Unwilling to believe that his daughter had been seduced by Zeus, Acrisius killed Danai's nurse as an accomplice and had his daughter and grandson thrown into the sea in a wooden chest. The chest was cast upon the island of Serapos, where mother and child were taken in by a fisherman named Dictus, brother of the tyrant Polydictes. Now, <clears throat> one thing to remember here is that um, in, in the sort of... You know, we're back to Joseph Campbell for a minute, but his little sort of myth of the hero, um, you know, again, for whatever faults there are in, in, in some of Campbell's um, thinking about this, um, it is certainly true that the hero myth often starts with the child, uh, the child being a threat to some person, usually, you know, somebody who he's a rival for the kingship or, or something. There's some kind of a, uh, a threat. And so the, they're either sent away, they're cast away, or they... Uh, and oftentimes they are sent down a river or into the sea in a chest, um, which in some ways is reminiscent of the flood myths where um, all of them, you know, they, they climb into a chest and, and are um, carried to safety along the sea. Um, but he is, uh, you know, and of course then they end up living sort of, you know, landing somewhere and, and living an idyllic childhood, usually among shepherds. So this kind of follows the pattern. So Dictus welcomed them and raised the young Perseus, who became a handsome and courageous young man. Polydictus conceived a passion for Danai, but Perseus guarded his mother well, and the king did not dare resort to violence. One day, Polydictes invited his friends, including Perseus, to dinner and asked what gift each was willing to offer him. All other guests said that a horse was a fitting gift, but Perseus declared that he would bring him the head of the Gorgon Medusa. I'm going to stop uh, Grimal's version here and just note that in some versions... Um, you know, this is actually a plot on Polydictes' part to, uh, to kill Perseus. So he suggests, and he knows Perseus is not, does not have the money to bring him a gift. So he, when Perseus says to him, well, I don't know what to bring you, what do you suggest? Then he asks for the head of the Gorgon, Medusa. Okay. Um, in this version that Grimal tells, the next day all the princes brought Polydictus a horse except for Perseus, who brought nothing. Polydictus then ordered him to fetch Medusa's head, saying that otherwise he would take Danai by force. So, okay, I'm threatening to rape your mother if you don't uh, bring me this. In another version, okay, Polydictus, it says, intended to give all these presents to Hippodamia, whom he intended to marry. In this difficult situation, Perseus was helped by Hermaeus and Athena. Okay, Hermaeus being the, the um, psychopomp god, the god who crosses boundaries, and also the messenger god, and Athena, of course. 
Uh, on their advice, he went first in search of the Grey Eye. And Grey Eye are the old women. These are uh, three women who are born old and um, who are blind uh, and have the uh, gift of prophecy. They're also said to be cannibalistic. Um, but the, he finds the Grey Eye, and they eventually showed him the way to the nymphs, who possessed winged sandals, a shoulder bag called a kibisis, and, um, or kibisis, and the helmet of Hades, which has made its wearer invisible. Okay, so he has uh, winged sandals, uh, a, a this, this special shoulder bag, and you find what, what, what does he need a shoulder bag for? Well, this is the thing that he can put um, the head of Medusa in without being affected by it. Uh, and, of course, with the, the helmet of invisibility, um, and he also has a sword. Uh, the nymphs gave these objects... Oh, and I should also note that they don't mention here that he also has a shield. The shield is, is critically important here. Uh, the nymphs give these objects to Perseus, while Hermaeus had armed him with the harpe, a sickle made of adamant. Okay, so there's that. Um, adamant is like a very, very hard uh, stone. Uh, Perseus then set off to look for the gorgons, Steno, Ureli, and Medusa. Of the three, only Medusa was mortal, which is why Perseus had some hope of decapitating her. While Medusa was asleep, Perseus rose into the air on his winged sandals, and while Athena held a shield of polished bronze over Medusa so that it acted as a mirror, he struck off her head. From Medusa's mutilated neck sprang a winged horse, Pegasus, and a giant, uh, Criseor. Perseus put the head of Medusa in his shoulder bag and set off home. The victim's two sisters pursued him, but to no avail, for Hades' helmet prevented them from seeing him. On the way back, Perseus traveled through Ethiopia, where he came across Andromeda. Yeah, and I like to note to people that it's Ethiopia where he picks up Andromeda. So, um, you know, so Andromeda is an African princess. Okay, um, I didn't, in many like Clash of the Titans and these others, she represented as this sort of little, really white kind of child, and I'm like, no, no, she's not. Um, she was being offered as a sacrifice in expiation of the imprudent words spoken by her mother, Cassiopeia, and had been tied to a rock. Okay, she was supposed to be uh, sacrificed to uh, the sea monster in some versions. The kraken um, was supposed to come in and take her away. Um, now, a lot of sea motifs here. You have Perseus who's thrown into the sea. You have Andromeda who's in danger of being sacrificed to the sea. There's some, some symbolism here as well. Um... So Perseus fell in love with Andromeda and promised her father, um, Cepheus, that he would release her um, if he could have her hand in marriage. Okay, and, and thus, supposedly, when the monster came for Andromeda, Perseus showed him the head of the Gorgon, and then the monster turned to stone, and he was able to rescue Andromeda. The bargain was struck, and Perseus slew the monster. Okay. After his marriage, Perseus ma um, returned to Serapos, accompanied by Andromeda. During his absence, Polydictes had tried to rape Danae, who had to seek refuge at the altars of the gods. Perseus took his revenge on Polydictes by turning him to stone. He then handed over the government of Serapos to Dictus. He gave the sandals, bag, and Hades' helmet to Hermaeus, who returned them to the nymphs. Athena set the head of Medusa in the middle of her shield. Perseus then left Serapos with Andromeda and set off for his native land, Argus, to see his grandfather, Acrisius. However, Perseus accidentally killed him at Larissa in Thessaly. Not daring to return to Argus in order to claim the kingdom of the man he had killed, he exchanged places with his cousin Megapenthes, who thus became the king of Argus while Perseus became king of Tyrans. Um, and interestingly, I'm just going to throw this in, even though this doesn't have to do with Medusa, um, because this will be a future topic. Perseus is said to have successfully opposed the introduction of the cult of Dionysus into Argus, and even to fought the god and drowned him in a lake at Lerna. Uh, he's also said to have killed Ariadne, who was 
among other things, um, considered to be a spouse of Dionysus. In the same battle, um, and another version gives just Ariadne as Perseus's victim. Mythographers of the Roman period recorded that after Danae and Perseus had been thrown into the sea by Acrisius, they landed not at Serapos, but on the coast of Latium. Yes, of course. That's where uh, Aeneas um, was, was uh, uh, eventually lands. There, um, King Polumnus married Danae and with her founded the city of Ardea. Turnus was supposed to be a descendant of this marriage. So this is the way they tie Perseus into um, Roman mythology. Okay. So we hear the story of Perseus here, um, and uh, you know, and, and as I mentioned in the earlier story, uh, Medusa is also you know, Medusa is you know is a couple of different things. And, the, and in the story that's told here by Grimal, Medusa is very passive; she's asleep, and Perseus comes and beheads her. Okay, um, I don't know, and you know, and again, the, there, there's the importance of the shield. Um, he can't look directly at Medusa, or he will turn to stone himself. So, um, you know, in some versions, he's holding the shield. This particular one, Athena, is holding the shield for him. Um, and thus, he, he avoids being turned into an object, into stone, um, through reflection. Okay, the, through, um, you know, not, look, through not approaching, not, not, doing, not looking at her directly, not approaching the situation directly, okay? Um, which, which is rather interesting. Um, I'm going to mention, I just want to say something quickly about Medusa's children here too. Um, Pegasus, who's the winged horse. Now horses are associated, as we noted, with Poseidon. And the idea of who is, of course, a water god, and of course, this, this horse with wings kind of adds a, an, an air element to the, uh, to the horse. Um, Criseor, um, is, like I said, he's, he's, he's portrayed as a man who's born holding a golden sword. And this is often interpreted as um, Chryseor as being almost like a sheaf of grain, okay? He's like a golden, you know, he's like tall and golden. Um, and he also um, mates with one of the sea monsters and produces, among, among the, his, other, his offspring are um, Geryon, which is the fiery um, god uh, that uh, is killed later by, uh, by Hercules or Heracles. <clears throat> And so you, so you have the children, so you have this, this, um, this sea reference, you have this horse, but you, are, but you also have um, a, a masculine figure who's kind of the representative of, of the grain that is cut down, okay, kind of your, your like your John Barleycorn kind of thing. So, it, so we kind of see this connection, um, you know, the mating of Medusa and Poseidon creates creatures that are... Um, you know, of that are you know that, that you know, have an interesting connection to fertility and and to nature. Okay. Um, okay. So just having mentioned that, I want to talk a little bit. That there's basically, like I said, when I when I read this story and I think about it in terms of other myths, there's three kind of basic themes that that present themselves. Okay. First of all, there's the theme of being turned to stone. Okay. When we when someone is turned to stone, what does it mean to be turned to stone? That's one theme. Um, the other has to do with Medusa as a water deity. We don't necessarily tend to think of her that way. Um, but her as kind of being connected to the water, as, we, as, um, as I think I mentioned, water, um, the underworld is often portrayed as either being under the earth or under the sea. And Poseidon, who is a god of the sea, is also a god of earthquakes uh, and horses. Um, so there's this... Um, 
So there's this question of what does it mean to be, why is it that she is a water deity, so to speak, or a, um, you know, or a water monster, as it were. Water, there, there are, there's, a, there's um, a lot of particularly, both male and female, but there's a lot of particularly female um, water deities or water monsters uh, in Greek myth. And then the question becomes, well, what are they and what do they represent? Um, it's also worth mentioning Ovid in his uh, Metamorphoses. Um, there's a lot of examples as well of um, these uh, beautiful nymphs who, you know, like like the later story, you know, beautiful nymphs who are turned into water monsters. And then what does that mean? You know, what what is what is the change in, in um, inflection there? What is what is the understanding? Okay, so that's the second theme. The third theme has to do kind of with that change in role, okay? Um, you know, why? Um, so she's, she's either shown as an example of, of hubris against the gods, you know, my, my hair is more beautiful than your hair, um, or she's uh, considered to be a rape victim, okay? And that's just very interesting in all of these cases. Um, and I, I want to talk about what that means. I think it plays into a larger theme that I've continually um, talked about, uh, in terms of the, the, the changing nature of religion uh, between um, the ancients and uh, what we think of as religion in the modern world. Um, so, but I'm going to take each of these themes one at a time rather than kind of give a kind of a summary here. Okay, so first let's talk about turning to stone. Um, so what does it mean to turn to stone? Um, there's, there's a couple of possibilities, a couple different ways you can look at this idea of um, having a woman look at you and, and, and turn you to stone. Um, there's one, one way to look at it. Um, it's the idea of, of objectification or of, of turning someone into an object rather than a subject, okay? Uh, we do this a lot with uh, celebrities, for example. So, you know, they, they cease to become real people, their images, their objects. They're things that we look at, but they're not, not an actual person. Okay, so what does it mean for somebody to, to turn you to stone in that fashion? Um, and, you know, and, and I, and in some ways, I kind of see the Medusa story, um, or the Medusa ability of Medusa, or the, of the Gorgons in general, to turn people to stone as a reverse of the story of Pygmalion and, and Galatea. Um, not not necessarily their original names, by the way, but those are the names that have later been assigned to them. That comes from a story of uh, having to do with the goddess Aphrodite. And um, Pygmalion is, is a young man living on um, Cyprus, which is the um, island sacred to Aphrodite. And he is a sculptor. And he, he does not like the women on the island of Cyprus because he thinks they're all, uh, they're all loose women. You know, he's, he's, you know, very chaste, okay? And so he sculpts himself a statue of a woman, and he falls in love with the statue of the woman. I mean, to the point that he's bringing, bringing it gifts and everything else, and he very much is in love with the, the image that he has created. Um, but of course, it's just an image. It's just a, it's just a stone object. So uh, at Aphrodite's uh, annual festival, he goes and he prays to the goddess and asks that, you know, if she could make his uh, stone woman real. And in that, in that version of the myth, Aphrodite is rather touched by his, um, his um, request. So he goes home from the festival and then finds the statue is gone, but there's a, a live woman sitting there who resembles his statue uh, where he had been. And in some versions, she is referred to as um, Galatea. 
Um, and I believe that they, uh, he, he, so he marries her. And, um, so, so basically that's, that's the reverse. You have something that's an, a stone object that now becomes a real person. Uh, Medusa may represent, uh, the opposite effect, the way in which we may take, um, real people and real feelings and real situations and, and, and turn them into something objectified, something that's used as a means to an end or something that is, um, you know, it is only, you know, perhaps it's a tool for gratification, perhaps it's a tool for, you know, something, it's something else, but where some, somebody is being used as a tool rather than being treated um, in their own right. And again, we have a female figure that, that, that is doing this, but there's this, um, so there's this unconscious sense of um, the way in which um, a real, real person can be um, objectified and used as an object. Um, you know, you know, turned into, um, basically turned into an object. Um, the other sense of uh, turning to stone connects in with, um, you know, what, what, what I'll explore as a second theme, uh, which I'm not entirely getting to yet, but um, just as, it, it, they, I mean, they're interrelated. Um, now, sea monsters typically in mythology, I, I usually, when I teach this, um, Again, when I teach this at the university level, usually I have a whole class just on sea deities and sea monsters, because uh, that's a whole, you know, a whole genealogy in and of itself. And typically, when we look at it from a psychological view of myth or a psychoanalytical view, uh, sea monsters tend to represent the terrors of the unconscious mind, okay? And so often, um, you know, the that that's those sort of um, monstrous figures that are swimming around the waters of what Jung would call the collective unconscious. Okay, these sort of um, uh, scary figures that we often confront when we get past our ego and our persona and our conscious thinking and start exploring uh, what's what's behind all of that. And Medusa can often represent a, a paralyzing influence of some kind, either a depression or in worst cases, a kind of schizophrenic um, condition, okay, where one, where the ego is frozen and, and cannot, um, and the personality can't shine forth. It's very interesting because if, if you, um, or anybody who practices or interested in Eastern thinking, Eastern religion, Eastern philosophy, a lot of times we kind of have this idea that um, anything that has to do with the, that the ego must be gotten rid of. Okay, there's this, uh, the ego is bad, we need to get rid of the ego. And, you know, it, that's actually, it, in one sense, you know, it has to do with our attachments to things, because things disappear. I think that's really how it's meant. But really, in the sense that we think of it, really, the idea of getting rid of the ego is, um, is silly. You can't get rid of the ego, you need an ego in order to be able to function in the world you know this is this is how you this is how you connect with the world around you this is how you connect socially this is how you function uh with other people you have to have some kind of you know you could you can you know if you want to recognize it as a game or or, or whatever you can do that but you but you can't do without it because without it um you're, you're you're completely unable to connect with the outside world now um i want to just read something else too um, there's a, there was a Jungian psychiatrist uh, called uh, Heinrich Karl Fiers who practiced, uh, I, I want to say 1950s, maybe 1960s. And he, um, he, I mean, he was also a psychiatrist. He was a medical doctor. He prescribed um, at, you know, whatever was available at that time for psychiatric illness, but he also made use of Jungian psychoanalysis um, in his 
um, in his methods. And he has a book called Jungian Psychiatry. And again, I often quote from this book when I teach as well. Um, and I want to read a little something because he talks about something called the Medusa effect. And that, that I think is relevant here in this idea of being turned to stone. Okay. Um, he talks about, um, he says, you know, psychotherapy must begin with the admission of the patient into a clinic. It is not initially, however, a question of procedure or techniques of treatment, but founded on the attitude of doctor and nursing staff. When the patient first arrives, we hardly know him. We have to get to know this person who is a stranger. He has to be accepted in the community of the clinic, not just into the building, okay? And so they'll talk about, um, you know, allowing the person to talk. Doctor has to listen. Um, first phase of treatment will last a few days, a few weeks. I'm just kind of running through here. And um, <clears throat> a few weeks. Over this period, we'll get to know the new arrival quite well. It is during this time uh, that what Jung called constellation takes place. Something manifests itself. What manifests itself has a bearing on fundamental questions affecting the patient's illness. Psychosis shatters the unity of consciousness and the supremacy of the will. The something that manifests itself in the constellation is the psychic factor, what Jung called a complex, that has created a disturbed state of consciousness by disrupting the order of consciousness. As a result, the patient suffers a loss of freedom that frequently corresponds in legal terms to diminished responsibility. Okay. Um, so he talks about how, um, the constellated contents are extremely varied, but one constantly comes across single motifs that recur in different cases. Freud emphasized the frequency of the Oedipus motif. Subsequently, Jung turned his particular attention to the study of such motifs. Okay. This is where we get the idea of archetypes, but there are also uh, motifs. And he says, by way of example, I would like to consider the psychological finding that Jung called the Medusa. The Medusa has mythological and biological aspects. In mythology, she is the mortal among the three daughters of Forcus, known as the Gor Gorgons. She has snakes for hair. Anyone who looks at her is turned to stone, etc., etc. Okay. Um, in context of biology, a Medusa is a sea creature with neither shell nor backbone. It belongs to the group of, uh, I'm not going to say this right, um, uh, nematophores, I think is how you say that, and has tentacles containing poisonous stinging capsules. It uses the poison to kill its prey. The biological aspect of the Medusa is further represented in patient's material by other sea creatures of a lower order that are related in form, such as the cephalopods, for example, an octopus, armed with tentacles, or the predatory starfish equipped with mobile arms. He says, I will now give a few clinical examples of this mythological and biological motif. In each case, the pressure is very considerable effect was involved, which so altered the patient's behavior that hospitalization was ordered. This does not necessarily imply a diagnosis of psychosis in the narrower sense of the term. Okay, so the first case, he mentions a 26-year-old student. For some time, he had been making observations about himself, which he carefully noted down. He met a girl and established a friendly relationship with her, but then came into conflict with her, with the result that she wanted to detach herself from him. The student was agitated and at a loss. He consulted a psychiatrist, but found no real rapport. Shortly after, he had an argument with a fellow student whom he suspected of having a relationship with his former girlfriend. The fellow student then got in touch with his patient's parents. At home, letters had already come to light in which the patient explained that he felt inwardly wrecked. He was judged to be a danger to himself and was admitted to the clinic. In the clinic, the patient was outwardly calm, though he admitted a certain suicidal leaning. Occasionally nervous, um, nervous, um, Tachycardias uh, uh, indicated effective tension. In a detailed written self-portrait, he described the lost girlfriend as a Medusa. 
When she left him, he had turned stone. That was the Medusa effect, the panic. He maintained that as a consequence of his inability to develop and sustain the relationship with his girlfriend, he had turned to stone for good. This is for why for him she was a Medusa and why the effect she had on him was the Medusa effect. Okay, so that's case one. Case two, a 27-year-old man, also a student, fails his exams. Subsequently, he becomes increasingly convinced of his political importance, feels himself surrounded by spies, and is certified on grounds of paranoid symptoms. In the clinic, his condition becomes acutely catatonic after a few weeks. The patient believes his bed is on fire, feels burned all over, and has to be put in a cell. There he is frightened and agitated. What particularly horrifies him is from the ceiling above his head hangs a giant octopus with alarming tentacles. He says he needs a doctor urgently, one who is half doctor, half veterinarian. I have observed the image of the Medusa, the boneless tentacled sea monster, not only in intellectual formulations or hallucinations, but in some cases in pictures patients uh, drew. And he offers examples in the book. I'm gonna, hopefully I can give you, show you these pictures on YouTube if I can get um, an image of them. Uh, when I've tried to scan them from this book, they look pretty lousy. So um, if I can, I will try to, to supplement with that. If not, if I can end up doing it for um, this particular podcast, um, probably on one of my podcast pages, Instagram or, or and uh, Facebook and some of the other places, Twitter, I'll try to have those pictures um, after the podcast is posted. Um, okay, case three, a 19-year-old youth undergoing clinical treatment on account of an extremely undisciplined and dissipated behavior. After some time, an attempt is made to transfer the patient to an open ward. However, he very rapidly becomes maniacally distracted and finally so disassociated that he has to be transferred back to the closed clinical section. There to occupy himself, he begins to draw. What he paints is an inferno, an underworld. The center of the underworld is ruled by a giant tentacled sea monster. Okay. Uh, case four, a 48-year-old woman married for years uh, began suffering from depressive moods. Very gradually, her state becomes manic and restless, eventually to a worrying degree. This leads to her being hospitalized. In the clinic, with only a few days, she gets into, within only a few days, she gets into a state of considerable agitation. To calm and distract her attention, a nurse allows her to draw. She draws an octopus with tentacles. Below the pictures are the word the octopus, the depths. Okay. Now he goes on. He's got several other cases like this. Um, and I, I mention them because, again, these, this idea of disassociation, this, this being turned to stone, um, either through a, a shock, a trauma, a depressive condition, something, uh, some kind, something that, that causes the person to disconnect with reality is associated with this tentacled sea monster. Okay, very interesting. And these are people who were not, I, I wouldn't necessarily call them students of mythology. Um, these, are, these are clinical psychiatric cases uh, from different walks of life and with different kinds of, you know, some with similar issues, but some with different ones. Okay, and we see everything from kind of a paranoid schizophrenia to, um, you know, suicidal depression being linked to this idea of being turned to stone. Okay, um, there's definitely a loss of energy and action associated with it. And in some cases, it's interesting how, again, that connection between the underworld and the sea, they see it as being in some kind of a fiery inferno or some, some kind of uh, underworld place. Okay, so... Um, Related to that, then, I think we should kind of segue into the Medusa as uh, a sea monster, okay, and Gorgons as sea monsters. Um, monstrous feminine as a sea creature is actually pretty common, and in psychoanalytic thinking, 
uh, that devouring and overwhelming influence of the ocean, you know, that sort of ocean of the collective unconscious, that sort of ends up becoming a metaphor for it. It's like the ocean, and the ocean is full of all kinds of creatures. Um, and we think of stories of being in the belly of the whale or being swallowed. Um, that's another example of this. Um, and again, we, we've talked about how the, the uncon the, that unconscious is often represented as feminine. And so this becomes a motif of the devouring feminine, okay? Um, <clears throat> and, and again, part of the hero's journey is that the hero has to go and, um, you know, he's either swallowed by the beast and then has to be disgorged in some way and then kills the beast. Uh, we certainly have um, ideas of the female serpent at the beginning of the world. Again, uh, like, like Tiamat, for example, comes to, ex um, comes to mind in uh, Babylonian mythology. Um, she's the great serpent that Marduk battles, and then um, when he kills her, her body becomes the firmament of the earth. Uh, there are also represent, uh, references to Leviathan in the Bible, you know, the, the great serpent that will be cut up and fed at the feast of the second coming. You know, there's, there's definitely this connection between the serpent and life. Um, now, of course, uh, and I've, I've, I've kind of, um, so, so the, the female serpent as the foundation of the world, really. Um, which is both, uh, again, which is both creative and which, which, which allow, which energizes us, but, but also, um, can, can stullify us, can stop us, can devour us. Uh, as I've mentioned, many, many goddesses in Greek mythology, you know, have the, have these very, um, positive aspects. Um, you know, ones that have to do with, you know, nurturing, creation, childbirth, but they're also goddesses of the violent death of children. You know, there's, there's this kind of, you're seeing this, this more complicated aspect of the feminine where it, it's, it's all of those things at the same time. And Medusa tends to represent this, um, this life force. When, when this life force is immobilized, if you think about Kundalini again in the, in Eastern thought and the way in which the Shakti force can be either mobilizing or paralyzing, um, when, when, when one, when it's properly, um, mobilized, you know, the idea of the serpent that comes up through the spine. Um, and, and it's often said, one of the things I've often said, um, about Kundalini yoga, I, I know that I've heard this a lot, um, particularly among certain, you know, Catholic church and other places where they say, oh, you shouldn't practice yoga if you're a Christian. Um, when, and, and again, I've often said, you know, when it comes to Hatha yoga and things like that, you know, there's, there's no reason you can't go to a yoga class and, and stretch your body out. I mean, that's just silliness. Um, however, I, I do sort of agree with them um, when it comes to other deeper um, practices like kundalini yoga. Um, if you're not properly taught by somebody, um, you do run the risk of, um, uh, of getting into paralyzing mental situations because, you know, uh, because, you know, the life force can get, you know, that, 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 that force that moves up to the spinal column can be, um, you know, can get stuck, it can get stilted, you know, something, things can happen. And if you're not, if you don't have someone who can help you fix those things, you, you can, you know, you can descend into mental illness and into other things. So that's why, you know, some certain types of, you know, yoga, when I see people just, you know, trying to do it from a book, I'm kind of like, you know, when you're playing, you know, that's, that's kind of like playing around with electricity. It's a very good thing, but you still don't want to stick your finger in an electrical socket. You, you could end up with a real, real shock force there. So, um, <clears throat> You know, so I, so I kind of think of that also as kind of Medusa as representing uh, the sort of blocked Kundalini energy that's stopped, it's turned to stone, okay? So that's um, another possible way to think about it. Um, now, um, so, okay, so we see, uh, so she represents, so, so um, Medusa and her sisters have to do with the sea and what is under the sea. 
Okay, and, and they are connected to Poseidon. Poseidon is the only one, as Grimal mentions, that who will um, mate with them or be involved with them. Um, I think, uh, and, and, it's, and, and so again, the idea of the sea serpent or monster, we can take it in the broadest sense as, um, you know, some, some kind of terrifying feminine that we might encounter uh, if we are, you know, attempting to explore the world, say, of our dream states, or if we are undergoing some kind of psychological trauma, you know, we might encounter these these fears. Or even if even if it's just general day to day stress and anxiety, and fear about things, uh, can be represented as these monstrous creatures. Especially if these fears allow us to, um, you know, stullify us. They they keep us from moving ahead. Um, now, so that kind of brings me though to the the change in the perception of these this kind of water creature. Okay, who doesn't merely represent um, sort of uh, these these aspects of unconsciousness <clears throat> or these aspects that um, need to be grappled with or dealt with in, in some way. Um, and again, Perseus really does show the way to deal with it because rather than um, directly, con you know, rather than, you know, he deals with it through reflection. I, I remember having um, one of my professors in grad school talk about, you know, the idea that Reflection is the way, you know, stopping and thinking rather than, um, you know, simply simply diving into something um, that is dangerous. There's, there's, you know, you don't look directly at the thing that, that can turn you to stone. You, you, look at, you only look at it by inflection or by reflection. Uh, one does not approach the archetypes directly. One approaches them through dreams, through images, through indirect things. You don't, you don't approach it directly, okay? Um, you know, even, even people who, um, engage in magical practice where they might, um, they might, you know, deal with certain energies, even that tends to be kind of more of an indirect, um, you know, there, I suppose there could be a direct possession in some cases, but a lot of times people are doing it indirectly. They use, uh, they use black mirrors, they use, um, you know, cauldrons, they use other things, they use other things to, to bring about those images rather than necessarily dealing with them directly. Okay. Um, now, I think one of the things, now, now again, we, as we noted, um, when we get to Ovid and when we get to the Romans, we start to see a change in the Medusa story. And there becomes, she becomes, falls more into the motif of the, um, you know, sort of the girlfriend of the god thing. And, um, and the one, and, and being put in a position where uh, she commits uh, some kind of hubris against, against a goddess. Athena, is a, or Minerva would be in the Roman, was a, was, was a frequent... Um, frequently offended. Both her and, and Aphrodite or Venus were frequently uh, offended by women who uh, felt that they were greater in some way. Um, um, uh, Arachne is one version, you know, where she's turned into a spider by Athena. Um, but but even, even, if, even if they have not offended a goddess, uh, sometimes um, women, nymphs who have spurned, okay, uh, you know, they, you know, there's a another being it could be a centaur it could be some other kind of earth being that approaches them and they reject their advances uh sometimes that can lead to um you know i'm thinking of the case of us uh, of scylla okay who um i believe it's uh, is, is his name glauke in any case he's a, he's a centaur who falls in love with um with medusa and um she uh oh somebody's about to make a loud noise outside that should be Oh, there's a truck going by. Hopefully we won't hear that too much in the background. Um, 
In any case, Scylla, uh, she rejects the advances, and so he goes to uh, Kirke or Circe, depending on how you like to say it, and the, the sorceress, and asks her for a potion to make um, Scylla fall in love with him, but of course, uh, Circe is in love with this, uh, with this centaur, and, but he, he, he's not interested in, in Circe, he, he's interested in Scylla. So she gets very angry, and of course, in her jealousy, she poisons the water that Scylla um, bathes in and turns her into this horrible monster. Um, with multiple heads and you know barking dogs and things and so this idea of the of the beautiful woman who is either haughty you know who thinks you know who who is either rejects somebody or she is haughty and she now becomes um now she's viewed as this kind of um, monster sea monster of some kind okay that's which is rather interesting and um, either that or she falls into the victim thing I've, I've read an article recently about Medusa as rape victim um, because of the later story that says that Poseidon ravished her in Athena's temple and that she was a priestess of Athena, in which case there's this idea that uh, Medusa is blameless. And, and like and similar to the story of Persephone and some of the other ones, there kind of becomes this idea of the um, rape victim of the god, okay, and whether or not that person is really a, did this person, will, you know, was this person willingly having sex with the god? Did they not know what they were doing, or were, you know, was it an innocent thing, or were they, um, or were they taken by force? And and so that becomes a rather interesting. Um, and the truck comes back again. Um, that's that is the interesting um, thing that we have to have to think about here. So um, so she is so okay. So so the question then becomes okay. So what's why is this change? What does this change in view? What does this mean when we look at the feminine? When we when we when we look at the feminine monster and there's like a sexualized component to it that she's either being punished for sexual behavior or for hubris. Okay, for hubris being the word for pride, thinking one is better than the gods in particular. That's that's like the worst form of hubris. Okay, or is she? Um, you know, or is it just, um, is it, does it have to do with an, immor an immoral kind of behavior? Because, because that would be, that would be an immorality. You, you don't, um, think of yourself as being better than the gods in any kind of a way, because you're, you're a mere mortal and they will, they will put you in your place rather quickly. Um, so, you know, so, and in the other version, it's almost like she's the model of the temptress. She's the beautiful woman who thinks she's more beautiful than the gods and, um, you know, and so the gods punish her by, you know, uh, like, you know, Medusa thinks her hair is beautiful. And so now, um, oh, you know, now we're going to turn your hair into snakes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and, and now you're going to be something that when people look on you, they turn to stone. Okay. Again, back to the objectification idea, but in a different way, more like it, it almost comes more back to the idea of, um, men who fall in love with beautiful women. And then when the woman rejects them, it's just, you know, because they see the woman as an object, you know, they feel like, you know, well, um, you know, that's a thing that I want to possess. I'm entitled to possess that. Okay. So that's, that's a rather, um, I don't know whether that's a different attitude from ancient Greece or not, but it's certainly one that, that comes out in some degree in the later stories. Um, there's also kind of a changing view of the serpent. Um, we start to, you know, especially, especially in later interpretations, okay, because the, the early Roman period kind of coincides with Christianity and certain forms of Judaism that were a little bit more um, apocalyptic. And you, you start to see, you have sort of this um, negative view of the serpent, okay? In most cultures, um, you know, snakes and snake mythology 
Um, you know, for whatever dangers the serpent may present, the serpent is usually considered to be a positive life-giving influence. The, the, um, the serpent has to do with, um, with, you know, with time, with the cyclical nature of time, and with, um, and with life. You know, life and, you know, is how it is. And the biblical view tends to view life as a corruption, as something that, that should not have happened. Um, what goes on in the garden um, is, is a sin, you know. And, and, you know, that, that, that lust for the forbidden fruit, which is encouraged by the serpent, okay? So you have this, this, this kind of idea. Uh, one interesting thing I want to say about that, and again, just sort of going back to the classes I've taught on this, um, as, as any university professor, full-time, part-time, whatever, knows, um, when you're teaching students um, a subject especially when you're lecturing. And by the way, I'm, I'm, a defense, I'm in defense of, of the lecture. A lot of people will say, um, no, classes should be interactive, lecture's boring, students don't pay attention. And I'm like, bull crap, students need to learn how to listen. People need to learn how to listen in general. It really gets on my nerves that, you know, I'm expected to stand up there and entertain and come up with worksheets for you. I'm like, no, you, you sit down, you shut up, and you listen to what I have to say because I've studied this and maybe you'll learn something drives me nuts too when they show up in class and they have no notebook, no pen, no nothing. Like they're not, not even like their computer to take notes. It's like, and if they have it open, they're probably looking at something other anyway. But how many of them, they don't know how to listen. They don't know how to take notes. They don't know how to extrapolate from what you say. Um, you know, anyway, why I bring this up is because when I've taught this particular class and I've had students who clearly are just sitting there vacantly and not paying attention, Frequently what will happen is there will be a test on the midterm exam. There'll be a test question, I should say. And that question will usually have something to do with the symbolism of the serpent. Okay, because when we talk about water deities, you know, what, what is the symbolization of the serpent? And inevitably, the ones who have not studied will immediately say, oh, well, the serpent um, is, represents evil and the devil, you know, because he tempted Eve in the garden. And that's the default answer. And, you know, while that answer is, at least for my purposes, wrong, um, I mean, it's, it's right in some ways, but it's wrong in the sense of what I'm trying to get them to get to, um, I, I say, okay, but I find it interesting because that's the default answer. I don't know the answer. I wasn't paying attention, um, but this is the, um, so I'm going to default to what the narrative that I was taught in my culture. It could have been in my religion. It could have been in my, you know, uh, you know, classes on religion. It could have just been something that I've heard somewhere in the culture if I'm not religious. But people default to the idea of the serpent as, um, in the Garden of Eden and the serpent as evil and the serpent is representing the devil in some fashion. So the life force, in other words, becomes associated with the devil. Um, and, you know, and, and, and there's, there's that, that's a rabbit hole we could really go down, um, with the idea of life as somehow being a, a, a satanic thing. Um, but, but rather than do that, I, I think it's just interesting to note the way in which Medusa, you know, she starts out as this, this one, um, type of creature. And I mean, it's not that she never doesn't represent a danger, but she goes from being um, really a, a divine type of creature, even though she, she can be killed, to, um, you know, this, this very powerful creature to some, some you know, to either being reduced to uh, a woman who thinks she's just so much better or a woman who is a victim. Um, I think the other thing I would like to say, um, and I'm also going to talk about this with the myth of Persephone, which will be the next topic that I cover, um, 
is that um, be very wary of how you interpret rape in Greek mythology. And I might have said this in previous episodes, so I apologize if I'm being repetitive. But it's important because people tend to take these narratives and try to look at them ethically. And I think that's another problem with this one, too. As we get into the Roman period um, and, and the nature of religion is changing, where it's changing from a... Um, sort of a trying to listen to negotiate and appease and make a pact with nature and the forces of nature when religion starts to become about a god that will save us and that thus we have to um you know engage in some kind of ethics and we expect the god to engage in some kind of ethics uh then these start to become morality tales and in the modern world we tend to look at um these stories like you know um another way that women are subjected through rape and I'm like, and of course, you know, this is one of the things when people teach classical mythology, they're like, well, the whole rape thing is triggering to people maybe who have actually been raped and so forth. Um, and while that's all understood that this is how we're reinterpreting it kind of in a modern context, I would suggest be very careful of interpreting rape scenes in, in a modern ethical sense. Um, even if you want to look at, even if you're looking at it and saying, wow, that girl was, you know, ravished by that God and, and she didn't ask for that. Um, you're not talking about the same thing. You're not talking about um, a relationship between a man and a woman. When you're talking about gods, you're talking about forces. So typically when you're talking about a rape, you're talking about uh, being overwhelmed by a particular force. And sometimes it is metaphorical of the way in which, um, you know, there is a, um, uh, you know, where one, where one is in one state and suddenly taken away to another state uh, that is semi-divine, but that the trauma and the, the difficulties that this may cause or what, that, what comes out of it, what kind of trouble that might bring or what, what kind of good things that might bring too, especially if, if, if the result of that is the birth of a hero, for example. So um, it, it's generally more representative of something rather than, um, you know, there's, there's a lot in Greek mythology. There's rape, incest, cannibalism, and all of it has to be taken. You cannot read it. it you're, 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 mis, you're making a mistake if you read it ethically, okay? Because, um, and, and that's the problem that a lot of people make because they assume that gods should behave in ethical ways. And I'm like, that's not what the gods represent. That's not how they are. Um, that's not how forces of nature are. They're, um, they're unpredictable, they're capricious, and they're not about uh, the kinds of rules that we like to set for living in a society. Not that we don't need those rules for living in a society, okay? They're, very, they're extremely important, okay? To, in order for everybody to be able to share and to get along, they're extremely important. But they don't have anything to do with the gods. The gods are not, you know, the gods may have their own kind of little code, about, you know, what's what, what boundaries set. And of course, if we talked about the Arrhenius, they're the ones who kind of, um, particularly within families, but also supposedly, if you believe Heraclitus, among the gods, that they will keep things within their natural boundaries, at least. You know, the gods aren't going to pick up the sun and throw it somewhere, although at least in one myth, Zeus makes the sun rise in the west. So, you know, that, that doesn't always happen either, I suppose. But, um, you know, the idea is that you are dealing with forces that are not, you know, that are, that are outside of your normal kind of social conventions. And the gods may be pleased by something you do one day and not pleased by it the next day. Or you may do it, and even if it's pleasing to them, it may make no difference. So um, so bear that in mind, too, when we're talking about this. And I, and I feel like the Medusa myth is a good example of how, um, you know, again, this is another example of how the, the kind of force that she represents... Uh, the kind of uh, stullifying or, or, or traumatizing force that she represents 
um, how it's become uh, changed into something else um, when we, we start moving into um, more ethical inflections of religion. So that's where I'm going to leave off on Medusa. And again, I want to thank you very much for listening. I thank you, my thank my patrons. I've had you know some new patrons. I've had some patrons who have upped their donations. So again, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Um, if you would like to become a patron, please go visit um, Cathonia, uh, well, Patreon.com/Cathonia. Uh, please visit my website at Cathonia.net, um, where I have not only all of these podcast episodes, but also all the projects that I've been working on. Um, you know, including one academic book and some fiction works that are, you know, hopefully, I'm hoping the one's going to be done by the end of this summer. Uh, I'm also planning to put some new classes out uh, that I'm uh, constructing myself. I'm hoping to have those up uh, by the beginning of August. And also visit metapsychosis.com slash series slash Cathonia if you want to also see this series. And soon, uh, I believe on August 7th, um, I'm going to be having a, a mini podcast interview with Marco Morelli of metapsychosis.com, which, he will, which again, I don't think it will necessarily come out on the 7th, but um, sometime during the month of August, there will be um, uh, an official, you know, a, a bigger kind of launch, kind of soft-launched Cathonia on um, metapsychosis, but there'll be a bigger launch later in the month. So look out for that. And um, also I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram um, as Cathonia Podcast and also on Twitter as Cathonia Podcast and uh, Facebook as well. Um, I think the only place where I'm just Cathonia is on YouTube. So, um, you know, so please uh, check me out there. And, um, you know, we'll talk to you in the next episode.